We're looking at Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to read this morning verse 7 down to verse 17, Hebrews 13, 7 to 17, and I know you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of scripture open, reading along with me. Uh, You'll find that on page 1009 if you're using the church Bible. And again, before we do, let's go to the Lord in dependence on him to bless the preaching of his word. This is not a talk. This is not just me just giving a talk. So this is the preaching of God's word. Let's pray this morning and ask him to bless abundantly to to the well-being of our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures. We thank you for the proclamation of the scriptures. We thank you that it pleases you through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We thank you that the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified is wisdom and power for those who believe. And so we pray for a great manifestation of wisdom and power this morning. We pray that Christ would be seen and heard and felt and that you would draw us into deep communion with him, that the things of the world would grow strangely dim. We pray that you would help us to focus Bless both the preaching and the hearing of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, help them, literally help them, would probably be the right sense. Do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a historical account, maybe you've never heard this, there was a man named um, Carl F. Henry. He was one of the great evangelical leaders of the 20th century. He was the uh, founding editor of Christianity Today magazine, which was hugely important through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, even in America, and still continues today. And Carl Henry was invited to hear a very notable theologian who was a leader in some revisionist theology, a guy named Karl Barth, who was not historically Protestant, who was not teaching what the church had been had really embraced and received with the Protestant Reformation, and Bart had um, done a number of fanciful things with what Scripture was and saying it becomes God's word and lots of other problematic things. Um, and Bart had been invited to speak at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary and Chicago Divinity School, and he ended up being asked to speak at George Washington University. And um, Henry went down there and 
There were news reporters there from different reputable uh, newspapers and magazines, and and um, Henry got up at one point and he asked Bart whether he believed that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical fact. He knew he knew what button to push, and um, Bart, getting very angry at Henry, said, "Who are you again? Don't you work for Christianity yesterday?" And Henry, as he recounts this, said that God gave him the grace to very quickly shout back. Um, oh no, I worked for Christianity yesterday, today, and forever. I worked for Christianity yesterday, today, and forever. And Henry was obviously picking up on the words of uh, the writer of the Hebrews there in verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that's an interesting thing because that verse really seems to lack context. On a, on a quick reading through here, it seems more in the words of Sinclair Ferguson like a fortune cookie Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, it seems decontextualized, when in actuality, it is the centerpiece. It is the centerpiece of everything that the apostle is writing to the Hebrews here, and we're going to look this morning at four things. First, we're going to see the call to remember the pattern of Christianity. Secondly, we're going to see the person, the call to remember the person of Christianity, the call to remember the privileges of Christianity, and since I have to finish off alliteration, the call to remember the protection of Christianity. Now notice there in verse 7 that the writer has been in this applicatory section. He has gone through the whole of redemptive history and telling us about the faith of the saints. In chapter 11, he's gone through the whole of the Old Testament and said, whether it was Abel or Enoch or Noah or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Sarah, David, the prophets, the judges, whoever it was, they had faith in Jesus, they endured, and ultimately the crowning of all of that was that Jesus endured. Who they looked to by faith, he endured the cross, despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of God, the sufferings that the Hebrew Christians were facing could also be endured by faith in Jesus. That's the whole point. Endurance only comes out of a continued steadfast faith in Jesus Christ understanding who he is, understanding all those things about him. And now he says to them in verse 7, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, he's not telling them at this point to remember their pastors. He's not saying, remember those who currently are your pastors. He'll tell them that in verse 17. What he's telling them is, remember the apostles. Remember those who, after Christ came, In the establishment of the New Covenant Church, they lived by faith, they died by faith, they exhibited what it meant to endure hardship by faith. Nearly every one of the apostles suffered uh, a, a brutal death at the end of their lives for trusting in Jesus Christ and enduring to the end. And now he says to them, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Now there's this close connection between their life of faith and their ministry of the word. Because at the end of the day, The only way that you are going to endure to the end is to be established in the word of God. It's the only way you're going to endure to the end. It doesn't happen through a mystical experience. It doesn't happen through an emotional high. It doesn't happen because you go to retreat after retreat or because the church you go to has enough energy and resources to summons up a good performance to make you happy for a little while. The only way you will endure to the end is if your faith is rested firmly on the apostolic doctrine. And notice that the writer is so concerned about this because the Hebrew Christians are in danger of embracing false doctrine. 
that he says to them, notice in verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. There's a very clear statement that it is possible for you to be led astray from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by feeding on false doctrine. Now, we've talked about this ad nauseum over the last four years, that there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as falsehood and everybody believes something and right now every one of you is either established in the faith in sound doctrine or you are feeding on things that are not good for your soul. Oftentimes, we don't even know why things aren't good for us when they're not good for us. That's the really important thing for us to keep in mind. Sinclair Ferguson makes the point Um, that so often with false teaching, we're not even sure whether it's ethical or moral. We're not even sure why something's wrong with it. But true believers oftentimes just know something's not right. It's actually a very scary place to be if we get to a point in our life where we don't want to deal with differences in doctrine and we want to just have this why can't we all just get along mentality that seems so pious, that that seems very pious, it seems very upright. It's actually the most deadly thing to true Christianity. A passage like this tells us this. And so the question is, what, how do I know? How do I know what sound doctrine is? How do I know that what I'm embracing, how do I know that what I'm established in is sound doctrine? And, and number one, he would say, remember those who led you. Put yourself squarely under the apostolic teaching. Submerge yourself in the scriptures. Let your minds and your hearts be so permeated with scripture that there's no question when somebody says something, you would at least be able to say, I don't know what's wrong with that, but there's something not right with what that person believes and teaches. And I think the apostles very clearly set out what sound doctrine is. And when they do, and this is the connection with verse eight, it is always that which is built squarely on Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I could preach six sermons on this verse. Let me say this first. You almost think it would have sufficed for him to say, Jesus Christ is the same, or Jesus Christ. Remember the outcome of their faith. Remember Jesus Christ. It seems like that would have been sufficient, but he added, and he felt like it would be more potent to bring in to his hearers, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I think there is a, there's a redemptive history thing going on here. Yesterday would be the old covenant era. Today would be the new covenant era. Forever would be eternity. Jesus Christ is the sum and the substance of everything that the Bible teaches about. That means... The most difficult parts of the Old Testament law that you don't get, why I can't eat certain shellfish and why I can't eat bacon, has everything to do with Jesus. I know. You may not get that right now. That's okay. You can talk to me after. I'll explain how bacon has to do with Jesus after. Every part of the Bible has something to do with the redemption that we have in Jesus. And what the writer of the Hebrews wants them to know is that the pattern of faith, the pattern of the faith is a pattern built on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is an unchanging Christ, that he is the same Christ for the Old Testament saints as he is for us, as he will be for all glory, in all glory, for the saints in glory, that Jesus Christ never changes, that 
Yes, even though he grew in wisdom and stature, and yes, though he progressed and went to different places, he is God in everything that makes God God. Now listen to this. The writer, I love the way um, my favorite theologian puts this. When he's talking about Hebrews 13.8, he says, the author assumes that his readers have assimilated the gist of his teaching, that he expects his appeal to come with a convincing force to them. They would understand that Jesus Christ must indeed be the same yesterday, today, and forever because they remember who Jesus was and in what terms he had been described to them in almost every sentence of the epistle. Let me break that down. When you come to Hebrews 13.8, you should understand that the entire force of the argument of the book of Hebrews is behind that and that everything the writer has said in almost every sentence of this book about Jesus Christ comes to full bear. And that means chapter 1 says that he's God, that he's equal with the Father, that he's the brightness of the Father's glory, that he's the exact representation of the Father's person, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, that he made purification for us by his once-for-all death on the cross. Chapter 2, that he took flesh to himself, that he became man, that he conquered Satan's sin and death, that he overthrew the one who had the power of death, and he delivered those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, that he is better than Melchizedek, that he is the great high priest who rules and reigns, who offered himself without spot to God, who cleanses our consciences from dead works through the shed blood that he shed at the cross. And then he rose and he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of God and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. And so he can sympathize because he knows what weakness is. He knows what pain is. He knows what hurt is. He knows what temptation is. The writer would have you take all of that and say, that's the same Jesus that the Old Testament saints trusted in, that we are to trust in, and who forever is that Jesus in glory. He is the God-man. Let me tell you what else this means. It means that everything you read in the Gospels about Jesus, how he stopped on his way to the cross for a blind man, crying out, have mercy on me, son of David, and he did have mercy on him, is true today. For any who come to Jesus and cry out, have mercy on me, son of David, he stops for one sinner. And what we read in the Gospels about him healing the deaf and the mute and the blind and the lame and raising the dead and every single act of compassion and mercy and every prostitute who came to him and wept behind his feet because they knew that they needed their sins forgiven. And he says to every one of them and he says to everyone who comes to him today like that, your sins are forgiven you. And the same Jesus who wept outside of the tomb of Lazarus because he saw the awful effects of death. And that same Jesus today has compassion when people are suffering. That's something we forget. Sometimes we think of Jesus as this impersonal, all-powerful, non-emotional being who is merely God and has all authority and power, because he is. And we forget that he is the one who was moved with compassion. And we forget that his heart uh, broke when he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. And we forget that he's the one who said, come unto me, and I will give you rest for your souls. And he's the one who said, "Um, if anyone comes to me, I will never cast him out. 
He's the same Jesus today. He's the one that took a paralytic and said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Arise, take up your bed and walk. And he's the same Jesus who says to people who trust him today, your sins are forgiven you. And here's the question. If, if that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, why in the world would you ever move away from him? Why in the world would you ever turn to some false teaching that counterfeits Christianity or that seems like it'll give you a more immediate help or some band-aid for the wounds of your soul when that Jesus says to you this morning, I am the same Jesus as I was then, as I always will be. I am the compassionate one who leads my people besides rivers of living water. Come to me and find rest for your souls. I wonder, I wonder when people say, well, you know, we all believe in Jesus. Because that, that happens a lot in conversations, especially when you're a pastor. And they don't want you to tell them about the biblical Jesus. I wonder when people say we all, we all believe in Jesus, whether they would ever be able to take Hebrews 13.8 and actually explain to somebody why that's so important for them, why that's so important on their lives when the trials come, when the challenges come, you know, when your job is almost too hard to bear, when you lose a loved one, when you lose a child, when your marriage falls apart. What good is it to say, well, we all believe in the same Jesus. I need a Jesus who is as powerful and compassionate and sufficient and merciful and a Jesus who knows my wounds and my needs and my burdens, who I can go to and pour my heart out to and know that he's the same Lord Jesus Christ that will respond in the same way as he did in the days of his flesh. And I need a Jesus who I know offered himself without spot to God and whose once for all sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God and who took the guilt and the shame of my sin upon himself because my life is so screwed up and messed up that if I don't have a Jesus like that, I am done. I am done. And frankly, you need a Jesus like that. And if you don't realize how messy and messed up you are, you will never go to that Jesus. But once you embrace the fact that you have come to an end of yourself, you will run to him and you will find great comfort in the fact that the Jesus who ought to condemn you is the Jesus who receives you and washes you and has mercy on you and continually restores you and heals you and builds you up and is there at your beckoning call as a high priest, as a king, as a prophet, who is there for you, who says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And with tender compassion, I will receive you to myself. And frankly, let me say this this morning. Christianity is nothing less than what I just said. And if that is not a clarion call to us to flee into the arms of Jesus, there is nothing else I can say to you. There is almost no greater statement in the whole of the Bible than Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now the writer wants you to understand more of what that means, and clearly he means the truth about Jesus and, and the, the, the doctrine that is unfolded everywhere in the New Testament about our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice he moves in verse 10 to tell us something about the privileges that we have in Jesus. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now what he means is 
the Hebrew Christians were in danger of going back to Judaism, the sacrificial system. That would be a denial that Jesus was a sufficient sacrifice. And what he says is, we have an altar, because in the Old Testament, the priest would be able to eat portions of the sacrifices, and that was a picture of having communion and fellowship with God and being partakers of his grace. And he says, in Jesus Christ, you have an altar of which those who minister at the tabernacle, that is, everybody in Judaism at this point, and everybody who has not come to Jesus, they have no right to eat from it. So what the writer wants you to know is the great privilege you have of feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you have the privilege of feeding on Jesus. Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and will live because of me. He wants you to partake of him in the fullest way possible for the well-being of your souls. And what the writer is saying is if you've believed on Jesus, that's yours. And that is yours alone. God has reserved that only for his people. God has reserved for his people the right to know that your guilt and your corruption have been dealt with in the death of Jesus. I met someone recently who, in the course of telling me why he didn't need Jesus, um, and telling me why his higher power works for him, um, went on to tell me how messed up his life was, how horrible it was, and and. I, it, I, it took everything in me to hold back from saying, huh, sounds like your higher power is really working for you. Or to pull an Elijah and, and to say, maybe he's taking a nap, your higher power. Maybe he's, maybe he's on vacation. Um, what the writer of Hebrews would have you know is that you have the floodgates of heaven open to you and direct access to Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice, so that you can be assured that the guilt and shame and corruption of your sin has been taken away. And that's, listen, when you start to get that and that really sinks in, you will never, ever, ever move away from Jesus. It doesn't matter if Satan came at you with every temptation the world has to offer. When your soul knows that you have an altar to eat from and that you are spiritually feeding on Jesus, you will not even entertain for a second what it would mean to walk away from Jesus Christ. So the writer wants you to know the person of Jesus. He doesn't change. He wants you to know the privileges that you have. Now, notice that when he unpacks this in verse 11 and 12, he continues to tell us what Christ has done. And he says, in the Old Testament, the animals were taken outside and burned outside the camp. And Jesus suffered outside the camp. So that was an intentional parallel. Those animals were showing what would happen. He suffered outside the camp. And notice what he says in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus went outside. He was put out of God's presence. He was cut off from the land of the living. The covenant curses fell on Jesus so that you would know what it is to have your sins forgiven, to be sanctified in him, to be complete in him, to be washed in him, to be whole in Jesus. And so the writer is essentially saying to you, meditate on what you have in Jesus Christ. I I don't know about you, but I'm a very forgetful person. I know I, I frustrate some of you with that. I'm sorry. Um, I mean that. I'm sorry. Um, and forgetting things is one of the most damaging things in life. You forget an appointment. You forget, you know, you forget a meeting. You forget to pay your, your mortgage, whatever. Very damaging thing in life. Um, 
Anna and I, not, not many years ago, were going to visit some loved ones, and, and the people we were going to visit had done a lot for us, and I really wanted to get them a nice gift. And so I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to find the perfect gift for them. Found it, bought it, took it home, um, told Anna, I really want to take this on the trip. And so Anna, being the good wife that she is, put it on the table. Anna, being the good wife she is, got everything ready because I forget. And she loaded the car and she put the kids in the car and I didn't help her adequately like I should have. And we got in the car and we're halfway there and I'm like, did you bring the present? And in dismay, Anna was like, oh no, I forgot it. And then I simply yelled at my wife and had to repent for like two weeks. <laughs> Afterwards, I'm not kidding you, it was devastating. All because I forgot the gift that I had spent so much time to get. Now let me say this. The Christian life, so much of the Christian life is about remembering. So simple and yet very complex. Because while so much of the Christian life is remembering... So much of our lives is spent forgetting what God has done for us in Christ. And what the writer is saying is, remember. Remember those who went before you. Remember their teaching. Remember their lives. Remember that it was centered on Jesus. Remember that Jesus doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember what you have in him. Remember the privileges that you have in him. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what you have. And you know what? Here's the thing. When you remember what you have in Christ, you soar spiritually. And when you forget, you are paralyzed, you backslide, you get ensnared in sin. And it is so simple, and yet it is so difficult. And so the writer is pressing home this morning, remember. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, he tells us to remember those that he's put over us. Notice there in verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who give an account, let them do so with joy and not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you. Now, what the writer is going to do here is he's going to tie this up, and he's going to say, Your faith is built on Jesus Christ, who never changes. Don't move away from him. And in order for you to keep growing in that, God has appointed elders to put over you, to care for you, to shepherd you, to feed you with the good things of God's word, to warn you of sin, to encourage you in your progress as you press on, to go out after you when you stray. And that's, that's the work of ministry God has appointed. He's, he's appointed protection to help ensure that what you're hearing this morning continues in your life. And it's the best place in the world to be under a pastor who is faithful to God's word. It's not them in themselves. It's the office that God has given them. And a man who proclaims Jesus Christ to you consistently is the safest place you could ever be. And yet, for all that, our default setting of our soul is to disregard, not to appreciate, I'm not saying this because of me, the default of our soul is not to appreciate them and to want to be as far from them as possible. And notice what the writer says. He says, Obey your leaders, submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I have to give an account to God for you if you're a member in this church. It's a very weighty, weighty thing. On judgment day, you will have to give an account of what you did in your body, good and bad. I will have to give an account of that and for you. I'm called to watch over the souls of God's people. And I want to do that with joy. And there is almost nothing more joyful than when the people of God are growing spiritually, receiving the word, manifesting fruit in their lives, 
And there's almost nothing so burdensome as when they're not doing that. And so the writer actually writes this word to the people of God, not so much to the minister. He says, essentially, help them do this with joy and not with groaning. Make their job enjoyable because they're watching out for your souls. They're praying for you. You know, I will say this because you don't know what I do in private. I pray for individuals in this congregation, and I need to do it more, and I pray individually for needs that I see, and I need to get better at that. But that's what I've been called to, to think about the individual people that God has entrusted to my care. And I want you to know this, that while the ministry is difficult, there's many trials. You see this in the Apostle Paul. He's often weighed down with trials and burdens. There is almost nothing that rejoices my heart more than when I see God answering prayers, people responding to the preaching of the gospel, lives being changed, marriages being healed, homes being blessed. It is, it is one of the most rewarding experiences I can ever have in ministry. And you know what? Let me say this as we close. I am utterly convinced that the week in and week out preaching of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is working, will continue to work, is changing us, and the call, and here's the call, do not fight against the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him. Be going to him. Um, Spend time communing with him. Spend time pouring out your burdens to him. Um, I actually find a lot of fulfillment when people come to me and they open up about their burdens. I enjoy that. I'm that kind of person. Um, I can't do anything for you in the ultimate sense. Jesus loves when you come to him and pour out your burdens, and he loves to heal, and he loves to restore, and he loves to keep you close to him. He wants you to be close to him. I want to close with this thought. Um, Simon Peter had spent three years with Jesus, um, denies him to a little slave girl outside of Caiaphas' palace. And when Jesus came to him and Jesus had told him, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus turns and he looks at him. And Peter weeps at that point, yet he's not yet restored to Jesus. And then after the resurrection, Jesus meets the disciples and he comes specifically to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know I love, me, love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I love you. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. And what Jesus is doing at that moment for Peter is showing Peter that he's the same compassionate Christ who called him at the beginning. He's the same compassionate Christ who was with him through the whole ministry He was the same compassionate Christ who shed his blood for Peter's sin and that he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I want you to know this. It doesn't matter how far you've turned away from Jesus. If you will go back to him, he will deal with you gently. He will deal with you mercifully like he dealt with Peter. And you will learn that the same Lord Jesus who called you out of darkness and dealt with you graciously in your hour of 
rebellion and despair is the same Jesus that receives you over and over and over again when you go to him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please help us to understand these things. And Lord, though my attempt to um, preach these things is weak, we pray that your voice would be heard, Lord Jesus, and that every one of us would be drawn to you and we'd be drawn to feed on you and to eat from the altar of which those who do not know you have no right. We pray that you would make us to remember the privileges we have and the blessings of the gospel, we pray, Father, that you would help us as we've heard the word to now feed on the Lord Jesus as we come to the table, prepare our hearts. We bless you for the same Lord Jesus Christ today. We pray these things in his name. Amen.